0: Welcome to EduTechnicalities, a podcast dedicated to the trends and topics facing higher education. My name is Roland Moe, and I am your host for our special series on Emergent Scholarship. This seven-part series provides a deep analysis on the conceptualization, generation, and dispersal of knowledge and its relationship to the academy, be it the professoriate or the relationships between education and the community. Our hope is to highlight the progressive and congruent work happening in scholarship, as well as signpost opportunities to support this production and dissemination in traditional spaces, such as academic disciplines, campus departments, and institutional promotion, tenure, and review. Our guest for this episode is Dr. George Valetsianos, a Canada Research Chair in Innovative Learning and Technology, as well as Professor of Technology and Education at Royal Roads University in Victoria, British Columbia. George is a former Fulbright Scholar and an Early Career Fellow of the Network of Excellence in Technology-Enhanced Learning, His research aims to understand and improve teaching, learning, and participation in emerging digital environments, achieved by examining the practices and experiences of learners, educators, and scholars, with and in online learning, social media, and open education scholarship. As you can imagine with that introduction, George's research output is remarkable in terms of quantity and quality. What is most interesting is the manner in which George has designed, implemented, and reported research across all of Boyer's planks as well as his dedication to promoting the research beyond traditional academic walls. We discussed George's experience navigating discipline and professorial expectations of research, while at the same time forging new pathways for the future development of novel research. Among the things fascinating about your work, George, is the breadth of scholarship that you have produced. And it started with your academic study, the manner in which you were able to produce a dissertation as a as a launch point into a very full scholastic career. If you could just kind of briefly discuss your pathway from uh, your doctoral work to today as a scholar, what you've produced and how that's both worked within and outside of the traditional expectations of scholarship.
1: My dissertation was a uh... It was a three-paper dissertation, as people frequently uh, call those things. So essentially what I did was to work around a central theme, but instead of writing one large examination of that topic, uh, I broke it up into three sort of overlapping uh, pieces of work. They were essentially two empirical studies and the theoretical piece of work. And the empirical studies examined aspects of that theoretical piece of work. And I thought that would be valuable, and it was, partly because it was then easy to convert those three pieces of work into uh, journal publications, right? And we hear often how uh, PhD students take their dissertation and then try and break it up into pieces to publish them, right? I was talking to someone the other day, and they said, oh, I managed to take my chapter two, and turn it into a paper and submit it to the journal when it's it's in review and whatnot. The idea back then was well, why do I need to you know write this thing up and then break it into a piece again and submit it? Why don't I instead go for the journal uh, paper immediately? So that's how that happened. At the University of Minnesota, where I was, there was a process for doing a three-paper dissertation. It was kind of in, the, in its beginning, so there were some minor challenges, like, for example, even though I wrote three, essentially, journal papers, they were still expecting it to be formatted as a dissertation, so I needed a chapter one and a chapter five. So if you look at my dissertation at the University of Minnesota, you'll see a chapter one consisting of a one page introduction and a chapter five consisting of a one page conclusion, which, you know, goes to speak to kind of our expectations about scholarship and how sometimes uh, those expectations shape what, what our scholarship is about. I wrote journal papers in collaboration with my supervisor and with others while doing my master's and PhD degree. So I kind of knew what a journal paper is, what it requires, and what it needs to do, uh, which made the process easier for me than having to write a full-length dissertation. Because, you know, honestly, I hadn't written one prior to that point, right? So writing a 30-page analysis uh, was something I was familiar with. From there. I wrote journal papers, book chapters, books, edited books. I created software, uh, which is how I got into this field. My original intention was to develop educational technology software. I I had the technical skills and I was interested in the field. So I went into my master's thinking that my career was going to be yeah, software developer for education software. Um, and I did a lot of that in my master's and PhD, but I was, I was more drawn to the research. But anyway, all of these things together, I've considered them to be scholarship, right? In some form or, or another, where uh, scholarship for me is the development of ideas or products or processes to improve. Educational practice, whether that's through technology, through writing, or through developing new processes.
0: What's interesting, many things come out of that. The first one I want to go with is talking about your dissertation as three papers and what you and your university had to do to ensure its recognition in the system. I hear examples similar to Mm. that in a lot of cases that we're doing something different that we see a value in. So personally, when I was writing my dissertation, my advisor was saying your chapter two would make a great paper. So once you're done, let's go back and work on the chapter two. And then there's this conflict of no one reads dissertations. So what is the purpose of putting all of this effort into this one document when it's good enough that I can redo a whole lot of it on this point? We're creating a document because it's what we always create. So I had a similar situation and I went through the full dissertation and then did my chapter two. But I hear this in the professional world today, specifically around people building, you mentioned uh, your your interest in building learning environments, people who are doing kind of a, a confluence of a digital learning environment with multimedia content. And they have to figure out, okay, we've built this. What is it that our discipline and our creditors will look at? What is a similarity that we can latch on to? Uh, and while that's normal in bureaucracy, that if, you know, you're, gonna, you're, you're going to have to find something that you already measure, with the rate at which we change handbooks and status documents with that glacial pace, when we're told that higher education needs to be moving much, uh, in a much more expeditious fashion, that seems problematic to me. That the things that we're doing we have to really figure out how they relate to the old and then wait a significant period of time to get change in there so that what we're doing now can become part of the part of the traditional you on top of writing a significant amount of scholarship are regularly involved in turning your scholarship into something for a wider audience
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: so you have essays in many of the trade publications in higher education also, you have embarked on a video series to distill scholarship into short, in many cases, five-minute videos. I'm interested in, one, the response to those pieces, both popular as well as academic. Are there places where that work that you're doing is considered part of your scholarship rather than an extra that you're doing because of the benefit you see not because of the benefit you receive in your promotion tenure and review.
1: I frequently try to share the work that we do and its insights, its lessons. I guess in many ways for a broader audience, whether those are whether that broad audience is academics in other fields or in the general public. Uh, so far, I've tried to do that with animated videos, which are count like four minute, five minute summaries uh, with, or with op-eds that are, you know, a thousand words long maybe. I do that for a couple of reasons. First of all, it helps me see the significance of the works that I do when I distill some of those ideas into lessons for practice. Uh, a lot of times in our research papers, even though Our field, my field, is uh, practice oriented. I find then that when we work on journal papers, we wait until the end of that paper to talk about the practical implications of the work. But whereas when we write our op eds, I think the practical implications are front and center. So I hope that, I think that helps keep me grounded. The second reason that we try to kind of translate our research is to kind of bring attention to it uh, from people that uh, may not necessarily be in our field, but may find value in, in the work that we do. People seem to like it, <laughs> uh, and I'm talking about the animated videos in particular right now. I've had a number of colleagues reach out and say, hey, could you help me do this for my work? Uh, could you give me a few pointers could you maybe just you know point me to the software that you use Uh, because this sounds really cool and I want to try it myself and I've always been happy to help uh, you know colleagues figure out how to do some of these things and I'm no expert myself right Uh, I saw them online these sort of videos and I thought that they would be interesting so I'm just Giving them a try, and if you go through my videos, you'll see like you'll see the progression, right, from the first ones to the ones that we're doing right now, and the ones that we're doing right now are are much better. So we've learned a few things. I'm happy to share those lessons. My institution values those in different ways. Like we've uh, some colleagues have seen value in them, and I uh, have tried to integrate them in their classrooms. like They've tried to do animated videos for content that they teach. Uh, They've asked their students to explore how they could use them in their practice. I find that uh, funders, um, the funding agencies that I pursue, value the translation of the work into something more um, approachable. So whether those are animated videos or ads or or video games or simulations, you know any sort of uh, work that gets the main ideas across that explains the scholarship seems to be valuable and worthwhile.
0: Much of the scholarship that you have written, um, specifically around uh, networked scholarship and network scholars. I'm interested in the manner in which your scholarship is disseminated versus those more mainstream pieces and where you see the impact in those spaces. So as you mentioned, you you work with a number of practitioners. Your teaching trade is in working with practitioners. And yet your scholarship is looking at the manner in which scholars are communicating with one another through various uh, Web 2.0 technologies. Where do they see the value? And I could pinpoint a couple of uh, of your articles on this, but you have so many. I don't think it would be mm-hmm. fair to you to say, you know, in, in 2014, you talked about this, but I'd be interested in, in you sharing a little bit of, of the findings that you've seen on the impact of those pieces of media and the conversation and gray material that comes out of that, that in many cases has turned into traditional scholarship or even emergent scholarship versus the journal articles and pieces that are really only shared through uh, advertisement on those on those platforms.
1: On a more traditional manner, it seems like a lot of people see new technologies as being vehicles to... Uh, promote the research, right? I write a paper, then I mention it on Twitter, try to get it out there, which is not not a new activity, right? I mean, people used to write papers and mail them to their colleagues. I see this as very similar. So in many ways, that sort of activity replaces other tools that used to do the same uh, or used to achieve the same means. Scholars also try to amplify their work with these new tools, either by using them to collect data for research. Uh, so, for example, you know, identifying participants through social media or disseminating a survey through social media or using social media data to answer questions of interest. They might also try to transform the work that they do through through these tools i guess transformation is a tricky construct because it talks to the changing nature of scholarship that we might see in different spaces so for example individuals might consider becoming their own their own publishers, right? To our recorded conversation, you were um, talking about a colleague who has a a platform uh, where they publish their content. They have colleagues publish their their content there. So that platform, that blog platform, has turned into sort of a, a publishing enterprise, right? And it, it becomes a a venue where knowledge is uh, negotiated, where it's shared where it's uh, where it's examined, um, so those are some sort of the things that we see when we engage with colleagues and explore how they see their work uh, changing or not changing through these tools and i, <laughs> I just realize that in describing those sorts of things I'm borrowing from my colleague John Hughes, who has created a model thinking about how technology is impacting teacher education. That model is called RAT, replacement, amplification, and transformation of practice. So this is very similar to that.
0: Thinking about your career and where you have both worked within the traditional ideas of what constitutes scholarship and where you've pushed against that and the places that you've seen struggle and the places that you've had acceptance and now in your role Working with students um, and helping them become professionals and helping them be successful in whatever the, their contribution to knowledge. Where do you see the opportunities to shift the conversation away from the more traditional expectations of what scholarship is towards these more emergent ideas that constitute the same amount of rigor but? haven't historically been accepted by governing bodies?
1: That's a great question. And I wish I had a clear answer for you. If you did, we wouldn't need the whole podcast series. That's perfect. <laughs> I think there's lots of places to have that conversation, right? Within our discipline, within our schools, you know, faculty, senate, academic leadership, I think there's a desire to explore new ways of not just sharing research, but doing, doing research. And it's interesting to me that the field of learning analytics has you know, boomed in the last what five years or so, given how we imagine scholarship uh, being a traditional endeavor. You know, with every day, I see more and more people engaging with learning analytics, doing learning analytics, even if they don't uh, see themselves in that field per se, right? They are uh, applying learning analytics methodologies or principles to their work in, you know, teacher education or um, learning technologies and so on. I think there's lessons to be learned there with regards to how the acceptance of that maybe field of practice has progressed over the years that we could apply to the idea of um, new forms of scholarship. And uh, I want to... Go back, though, to something that you mentioned, um, not just around acceptance, but around, you know, the tensions and challenges that people face, because I think that's something that we haven't touched upon uh, in our conversation. You know, we've highlighted some of the uh, potential, I guess, of these tools, but that's not to say that the area doesn't introduce tensions and tribulations for people, right? Some institutions might be more receptive than others. Some institutions might see these uh, sort of activities as add-ons. Some individuals might face more negative reactions to their work when they go online, for example, women or uh, scholars from underrepresented uh, backgrounds. So it's, I think it's important to keep those in mind as we advocate for new forms of scholarship and new forms of, uh, of practice. And it's important to to recognize that people come at this from different perspectives.
0: George, thank you so much for talking with us today. You can follow George on Twitter at Valetianos and on the web at valetianos.com. Examples of his scholastic reporting can be found at his Google Scholar site. And his most recent book, Social Media and Academia, Network Scholars, was published by Routledge Press. Thank you for listening to this episode of Edge Technicalities. Our bumper music, No, I Can't Be Happy Here, is courtesy of Austin Myers, who you can find at ak5a.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to our sponsor for this series, the Center for Faculty Scholarship and Development at Seattle Pacific University. Please join us again for the other episodes in our special series of Rethinking scholarship in the 21st Century, as well as the other special topics and themes that make edutechnicalities the unique experiment in audio production that it is. My name is Roland Moe. We look forward to having you again. Goodbye.
1: Thank mm-hmm. you.